0: before we start uh i read the thing but i mean you know how i am are the rules understandable from your explanation do you know what i mean like is there anything that's gonna be confusing can i fuck this up at all
1: so basically i mean the main thing as i said is just don't answer when it's not your turn okay so i'll I'll prompt you when it's your turn and i'll announce before each one whose turn it is to answer so just listen to that and don't just don't blurt out an answer when it's not your turn to answer
2: Okay. Yeah, I've listened to a couple of past episodes and I would say the scoring is quite complex but the gameplay is very simple.
1: Okay. All right, welcome to episode 18 of Recreational Thinking with Yoga Shroud. Our guests today are default friend Trey Kelso and Tom Kalachi. Remember that order, it's arbitrary but they'll be consistent throughout the game. So right now going in that order, could you each briefly state where you're Skyping from and approximately one sentence about yourself? Let's start with default.
0: Hey, um, I'm in Oregon by Mount Hood. And I'm in a cabin right now. That's also my sentence about myself.
1: <laughs> oh, cool, yeah. I probably could see Mount Hood if I went outside and went to a tall place, but I'm not going to do either of those things. All right. Uh, Trey? Hi,
3: I'm Trey Kelso from four floors above the revolution here in New York City. Glad to have the opportunity to do this tonight.
2: And Tom? Hi, I'm Tom Kolocci. I'm from London originally, as you could probably tell, but I am Skyping in from Los Angeles, where I live.
1: All right. So this game is in four rounds, one individual and three specialists. The first round I call the three rs round. It allows me to reduce, reuse, and recycle prior material. So these questions will only be worth a tenth of a point. They might serve as tiebreakers at the end of the game if necessary, but otherwise they mainly just function as a warm-up. In that, I don't mean that they're going to be easy. They're often some of the hardest of the game, but they just kind of throw you in at the deep end and let you get used to how my writing style works. So for this round only, you'll be answering as individuals. So if the first person the question is directed at misses, it'll go to the second, then the third. If the first two miss... So the further back you are in the order, the less of a direct shot you have. But the more time you have to think and some potential answers could get taken off the table. And we'll rotate. So of these nine questions, each of you will have three in first position, three in second, and three in third. And then the rules will change after this round. And I will explain that when that happens. So just a general reminder, you know, the content of this podcast is you talking through your thinking process. So don't just sit there and keep your thoughts to yourself. Kind of let the audience in on how you're approaching the question and what's going through your mind and any connections that spring to mind. All right, is everyone ready? Yep. All right, so we'll start with default in first position on this question. Oh, and I will use the chat window to copy and paste the questions in so you can see them in addition to hearing them. Although they are both best-selling fiction authors in their own right, 2009's Throttle and 2012's In the Tall Grass are the only two official collaborations between what father and son pair of novelists?
0: Oh man, I couldn't even begin to, to guess this. I guess I'm just going to have to to pass.
1: You want to just guess a random? Well, actually, you have two names. You want to guess two random names? Or they could be one name. If it's father and son, it could be shared.
0: Man, the first thing that came to mind I know is definitely wrong, and I can't remember the father's name. (laughs) Um, So I guess, yeah, I'm going to pass this one along. All right. So
3: uh,
1: Trey, then?
0: I've
3: been looking over it,
0: and I think that's Stephen
1: King and Joe Hill. Yeah, so the father is one of the best-selling authors of all time, Stephen King, and the son, Joe Hill. I think he was probably born Joe King, but I can see why he wouldn't want to use that name.
3: (laughs) The (laughs) name for the labor leader who
1: was murdered in Utah. Alright, so that is one tenth of the point goes to uh, Trey, and now we'll start with Trey in first position on this question. A lot of people remember Martina Hingis's heyday in the late 90s and early 2000s, but only dedicated tennis fans may have noticed that following a string of injuries, a controversial doping suspension, and two separate retirements, in the 2010s she re-unretired and went on an amazing tear as a doubles specialist, gaining 10 Grand Slam doubles titles between 2015 and 2017. So here's the question: Seven of those doubles titles came with partners from what country?
3: Okay, she was Czech, but she played out of Switzerland in her career. And I'm um, trying to think of who of those. So she didn't have much connection with the Czech Federation. Uh, 2010 to 20. Okay. um, You know, there were a couple of very good female players from Belgium back then. I'm going to guess Belgium.
2: All right, good guess, but not correct in this case. Tom? Yeah, don't really know. I have a vague idea that she played with Jamie Murray for a bit, but I might just be completely making that up, so I'll say the UK. All
1: right. Well, okay, I'll come back to that in a second, but I'll send this question now to default.
0: Um, just a random guess out of nowhere. I'm going to say Russia.
1: All right, yeah, all good guesses. And her most recent doubles titles were with Jamie Murray. Oh, okay. About that, but yes. Before that, she had, I believe, three with Sonia Mirza and four with Leander Pius, both of whom are from India. Oh. So Sonia Mirza was her partner in women's doubles and Leander Pius in mixed doubles. She played both of those kind of doubles. And actually, her first mixed doubles title in 2006 Australian Open was with Mahesh Bhupathi, who was also an Indian player. So Indians have been good to her. Alright, now we'll start with Tom in first position on this one. The 1990 film Betsy's Wedding, about a working-class man from Long Island who overspends on his daughter's wedding in order to impress his future in-laws, is remembered today primarily for a piece of trivia. The protagonist's daughters are played by Molly Ringwald and Ali Sheedy, and his father by Joey Bishop, making this the only film to unite members of the Rat Pack and the Brat Pack. So here's a question. What Oscar nominated actor who found far more success on television wrote, directed and starred in Betsy's
2: Wedding? I haven't got a clue. <laughs> um, more success on television. Oscar nominated actor. Woof. I have really no idea here. Um, can't even think of an Oscar nominated actor who was more successful on television. Pass. <laughs>
1: All right. I mean, there's no penalty for guessing, so I always tell people, you know, when there's no penalty for guessing, always guess, even if it's just, you know, Smith or something like that.
2: Sure, Johnson.
1: <laughs> Johnson, good guess. Uh, <laughs>
0: um, yeah, my guess isn't going to be much better. I'm the first person that came to mind. I can't even remember his name. So, I remember his face and. <laughs> Like, I guess that's a striking out once again. <laughs> my, uh, my, my random name guess is going to be Alan. Did you say Alan? Yeah. All right, and
3: Trey. Well, the guy I'm thinking of has a very, very good career of playing apoplectic, busting a blood vessel. Of course, if he's who I think he was, he did it a lot more on television for a lot greater cause, railing against war and insanity on *MASH*. I think the father was played by Alan Alda.
1: Yeah, so, default, your your wild guess was surprisingly close to correct. You did get his first name. It is Alan <laughs> Alda.
0: That's, that's who I was thinking of, but I couldn't remember his name. <laughs> oh,
1: no. But yes, only one Oscar nomination, but 20-plus Emmy nominations and six Emmy awards, and his name is Alan Alda.
3: Is that for the seduction of Joe Tynan? No,
1: it was for uh, The Aviator. All right, so we'll start with default and the next question. The late professor, in scare quotes, Erwin Corey, was known for both his alternative comedy stylings and his outspoken leftist politics, which is why it is very surprising that Ayn Rand was reportedly a huge fan. What other writer with libertarian leanings was almost certainly a fan of Corey, as he had the protagonist of his 1982 novel Friday repeatedly reference one of Corey's catchphrases?
0: 1982 so a libertarian writer writing in the early 80s hmm also have no clue on this one i'm gonna pass this one to i'm gonna pass all right trey you can turn your mic uh, on i feel like the verizon guy do you hear me
3: now (laughs) um i know of only one author that wrote a book called friday and i guess that starship troopers was kind of libertarian uh robert heinlein yeah, so his uh,
1: credited with a the quote uh, there's no such thing as a free lunch, which pretty much everyone hears in their intro econ class. His name was Robert A. Heinlein. Oh, okay. good. All right. Nice. Next question, we'll start with Trey in first position. The namesake of the award given to U.S. organizations for quality, a vague concept, but somewhat defined in business circles. Malcolm Ballridge Jr. served as Secretary of Commerce under Ronald Reagan until his 1987 death, which occurred while he was engaging in what competitive outdoor hobby that one doesn't generally associate with cabinet secretaries?
3: I have so many answers here that probably are not acceptable for publication on a podcast. (laughs) Um, Okay. Died in an outdoor activity that you don't associate with cabinet secretaries. Okay, Malcolm Baldrige. Really no idea of outdoor activity that could kill you? Well, presumably for recreation. I'll say
1: downhill skiing. Yeah, that's a good guess. There were definitely some major figures like Congressman Sonny Bono, who died that way, but not correct in this case. So, Tom?
2: I'm going to say motocross.
1: Oh, interesting. Yeah, definitely not something you associate <laughs> with. Uh, That's uh, what not I was correct. going for. Yeah. All right. Uh, default? Polo. So it did involve involve horses, but he was an aficionado of the rodeo. So he died after his horse fell on him during. Well, technically it was calf roping, but I would have accepted anything rodeo related. One of the odder deaths of a sitting cabinet secretary. All right, next question. We'll start with Tom in first position. Listen carefully to this. Okay. After he won two gold medals in the Olympic decathlon, Bob Matthias had a brief acting career before switching his focus to politics. He served four terms as a U.S. congressman from California until, like many Republicans, he was swept out of office in the post-Watergate 1974 elections. So here's a question. Rounding to the nearest whole number percentage, what... Somewhat ironically, were the percentages of votes cast in that election that went to Matthias and to his opponent, John Hans Krebs? We're looking here for two whole numbers that sum to 100.
2: Two gold medals that he's impicted, Catherine. Wow. Somewhat ironically, um, John Hans Krebs could be to do with the Krebs cycle? Um, I have no idea what's ironic. Um, 66 to 34.
1: <laughs> <laughs> All right, yeah, I mean, you may as well throw out a guess there. Always be guessing. All right, uh, One, default?
2: 1% chance of being right.
1: <laughs> exactly.
0: i um, going to follow that lead, and I can't believe I'm saying but 69 and 31. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> that would certainly be ironic for some people, but uh, not right in this case. All uh, right, Trey? Well, um, he was in the 48 Olympics. So I'll say 52-48. All right, yeah. Uh, The clue there was, yeah, right there in the first clause, uh, two gold medals in the Olympic decathlon. So yeah, the, the irony was that the numbers associated with his failure were also the numbers associated with his great successes, the years in which he won those gold medals, 48 and 52. Good job figuring it out to Trey and... All right, next one we'll start with default in first position. In 2018, a painting usually referred to as The Fallen Madonna with the Big Boobies was sold at auction for £15,000. A specially commissioned replica of this painting is owned by the family of the Marcus of Bath and is on display at their ancestral home of Longleat. Or was, I guess, before this quarantine stuff. This is especially impressive for a portrait that originated not with some old master, but as a prop on what World War II set UK sitcom that had its main run from 1984 to 1992?
0: Oh man, I wish that I knew anything about UK TV, because I feel like there can only be so many World War II UK sitcoms. (laughs) It would be immediately obvious. Um, But... Hmm. Sadly, only know about uh, Irish sitcoms from that era, so I guess it's it's Trey's turn to throw a guess. All right, Trey. Uh, well, I know one
3: British World War II sitcom, and if it is, that's great.
1: But the only guess I even have is the Home Guard. Home Guard, is it? You think you have Dad's Army? Sure. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, that was a sitcom about the Home Guard during World War II. But yeah, that's a very good guess, but not correct here. So we'll see if the uh, actual
2: Englishman can get it. I was going to say Dad's Army, but I, I know that that's too old for it. Um, Thanks. So I can't think of it. Late 80s um, prop, Madonna with a Big boobie I, I just haven't, I haven't seen it <laughs> on seen old UK TV. Uh, I'm going to say Alo Alo. Yeah,
1: as, uh, as Default said, there are there's a very small set of World War II set British sitcoms. So, yeah, once you rule out Dad's Army, the next one you went to, Alo, Alo, is in fact correct.
2: Ooh, there we go. <laughs>
1: Phew. Yes, you represented your country well there. I know that mainly through the uh, the Lauren Cooper sketch where she tries to get her French teacher to say good morning. But... <laughs> All right, starting now with Trey, the penultimate question of this round. After finding a bit of commercial success, early 20th century writer Armitage Trail decamped from the Chicago suburbs where he'd been living to L.A., where he became an alcoholic, ballooned in weight to 315 pounds, and dropped dead of a heart attack in 1930 at age 28. His main legacy was What Novel, which was adapted into a now-classic Hollywood film in 1932, and then readapted into a different now-classic Hollywood film five decades later. Okay,
3: 1932, and then sometime in the 80s they remade it. Um, It's very Chicago name, Armitage Trail. You know, it's a couple of streets in Chicago named Armitage, but uh, I don't think there's an Armitage Trail in Chicago, and none of this is helping except wasting time while I try to think of an answer for this. Oh boy, 1932, 1982. 1932. What happened in '32 in Hollywood that was important, um, and then then made some remade sometime in the '80s. It wasn't 50 years; it was five decades, right? Well, I mean, approximately 50 years. Okay, so early '80s. Um, I'm thinking of one movie from that time that was famous because it was like one of the last movies before they put in the production code to clean Hollywood up. I'm going to say Hell's Angels.
1: All right. Decent guess, but not correct in this case. Tom?
2: Is it Scarface?
1: Yeah, movie 1932 and then 1983, different movies, both considered classics. And also Chicago, yeah, he he did a lot of his research for it while living near Chicago because it was based on one of the more famous or infamous early 20th century Chicago figures. It's Scarface.
2: All right, so now the last question.
1: Sorry? Oh, thank you.
2: Yeah, it was between that or A Star is Born, but... All right.
1: And now the last question of this round before the rules change and we get to the the more intricate part. We'll start with, it looks like Tom in first position. A video clip that made the round a few years ago shows an 11-year-old boy performing Blueberry Hill with Nat King Cole on Cole's TV show in 1957. The following year, 1958, that boy played the young W.C. Handy in the Hollywood biopic St. Louis Blues, which starred Nat King Cole as the grown W.C. Handy. Name that musical prodigy who at the time had yet to meet the four Englishmen with whom his name is often associated today.
2: Uh, 11-year-old boy in 57, so then meets four Englishmen and he'd be in his 20s in the late 60s, early 70s um, for Englishmen. I can't really look past the Beatles here, but um, could it be Brian Epstein? Is
1: that what you want to
0: lock in as an answer?
2: Yes.
1: All right. Decent guess. I see the logic there, but not correct. Default?
0: Uh, this is frustrating because I remember looking this up and then being surprised back when I remember like my mom posting this on Facebook or something. Um, this is another one I don't have the name for and don't even have a, a guess so
1: you don't want to guess a random name
0: uh nah. i'll throw this one up all right trey
3: um if he was in st louis blues i'd be kind of completing the circle there was an african-american singer that was sometimes called the fifth beetle a performer which would mean that he could play a younger
1: nat king cole in st louis blues i guess billy preston yeah, so uh, Tom's intuition that four Englishmen referred to the Beatles was correct. And uh, in terms of the African-American musician who was... <laughs> there, have been, there have been multiple people called the fifth Beatle, but only one of them was African-American, and that was Billy Preston.
2: Yeah, I'd forgotten that bit about he could have passed for a young Nat King. <laughs> Not that I'd have come up with the right answer anyway.
1: All right, so it looks like, I believe, how many, is that six for Trey and two for Tom? Wouldn't it be a ninth one? That was a ninth one.
3: Yeah, I'm just saying, we should have six plus three. No, because
2: no one got the one about the congressman and the rodeo disaster.
1: Oh, right, right, right. Yeah, we didn't, yeah, right, the commerce secretary. All right, yeah, so I think after that round, we have scores of default 0.0, Trey 0.6, um, 0.2. Hi, this is future Yogesh. As some of you have no noticed, it was actually two questions that went dead in that round. So Trey has 0.5 points. So very small gaps there, very easy to make up in later rounds where the points will be much larger. All right, so we'll now go into the main rounds of the game, starting with round one, the not all that hard round, which will probably, it's it's intended at least to be the easiest round of the game. So the questions here should be much easier. In this round, in an all successive round, each of you will get three specialist questions related to your categories. Standard caveats apply. They're not intended to be a fair or comprehensive test of your knowledge of them. They may relate directly or obliquely. And at least at the beginning, I won't I won't reveal the categories up front. They'll probably become evident later in the game. So here's the twist before you can answer your specialist question your opponents or your fellow contestants i should say will get to work together to try and steal the points from you you'll only get a chance to answer for points if your opponents miss if i pass the question over to you without telling you if your opponents got it right just answer as though they got it wrong because even if you think they got it right you're not going to get any points from copying their answer and occasionally if questions are stolen from you there may be a bonus question an extra question related to the first one that'll give you a chance to get half as many points as a steal it may or may not. Not relate to the original specialist category and it probably won't be at the same level of difficulty and those will be irregular so they won't accompany all stolen questions and so since these questions are not all that hard they'll be worth two points as a steal one as a specialist and the points will go to both stealers in this and all successive rounds the points will go to both stealers, even if only one knows the answer so there's an element of luck in there in addition to all of the other elements and we'll begin now with Trey and Tom trying to steal from default so here's your question According to Anne Marie Gallagher's The Wicca Bible, The Definitive Guide to Magic and the Craft, quote, there are many sayings in folklore concerning trees, some of which contain little nuggets of wisdom. For example, the notion that oak draws the blank, ash the blank, comes from the fact that these trees are likely to be the tallest in the wood and therefore more likely to be struck by lightning. So what two words, respectively rhyming with oak and ash, have I redacted from that saying? Oak okay, draws ash the smoke. Be black. Oak would draw smoke and ash would draw flash.
2: I like that. All right,
1: is that what you want to lock in? Yeah,
2: all right. Smoke yeah. and flash.
1: All right. Default.
0: Um, I would actually have said the same thing.
1: You want to to modify it in case they're wrong? Um,
0: no.
2: All right, you're pulling
1: a Matt Jones there. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> I've definitely heard of a flash of lightning. I've never heard of a smoke of lightning. I have heard of a stroke of lightning. Ah. Uh,
2: nice. <laughs> is-
1: yeah. Okay. Oak draw the stroke and ash the flash. So no points change on that one. And we'll now go to Default and Tom trying to steal from Trey. The great Gardner Fox is credited with introducing the idea of the multiverse to DC Comics in a 1961 story that saw which superhero vibrate his molecule so quickly that he ends up on Earth 2 near Keystone City.
2: Okay, vibrating molecules so quickly, DC Comics. I could see this being Superman because he's normally the first to do lots of things. Superman,
0: or I see, sorry, go on.
2: Or, or I could see it being The Flash as well, who's famous for doing things so quickly.
0: I think we should go with The Flash.
2: What were you going to say about Superman?
0: Um, I mean, forget it. But uh, I don't think, I don't know, my gut tells me it's not Superman.
2: All right. I don't really know deep cut DC figures, so you guys will we'll, we'll lock in I'll feel so
0: bad on, if it is Superman. <laughs> okay.
2: We'll lock in on The Flash.
1: All right, you're locking in on The Flash. And yeah, so these... These questions aren't aren't intended to be that challenging, so you keyed in on the word quickly in the question, right? The one who's associated with super speed. It's the Flash. The story was, it was called something like Flash on Two Worlds or something like that. All right, so now we'll have the first bonus of the game for Trey. In that storyline, Flash of Two Worlds, I think it's called, Barry Allen meets what retired Golden Age superhero who was the original Flash?
3: Flash of Two Worlds
1: um, and Gardner Fox
3: the writer of this story invented the original Flash as well. Charming fellow name
1: of Jay Garrick. Yes, Jay Garrick is correct. So everyone gets some points on that. Two for Tom and default and one for Trey.
2: That's some deep cut knowledge, Trey.
1: <laughs> I wasted a lot of years reading that stuff. <laughs> yeah, it's probably worth much more than one point, but those are the rules. I I <laughs> All right, now Trey and default to steal from Tom. In order to compete in the Formula One World Championship, a driver must hold what kind of license with a rather guessable name? Article 5 of Appendix L of the FIA's International Sporting Code lays out the requirements to qualify for this kind of license.
0: I think it might be like a racing license or something. My, It's funny, my ex-husband actually was a competitive go karter and went through a lot of this. Okay.
3: Um, I would have guessed an F1 license except that Yogesh... So my knowledge of Formula One is pretty limited here. But the kind of license the driver would need, you know, if that's your memory saying it's a racing license, I can go with that.
1: You wanna lock in racing license then?
0: With your blessing tray. Yep. Alright. So I did
1: say I it was it. <laughs> I did say it was easily guessable, kind of straightforward, but not quite that straightforward. So I'll pass it to Tom.
2: I believe it's a Super License, and you get Super License points from winning lower tier events like Formula 2 and Formula 3, so it provides like a pathway to F1. Super License?
1: Yeah, so if you want to, to compete at the, the very top level for the World Championship, you need the, not just a regular license, but a Super License. It's not like that the Flash. Be a Flash License? <laughs> yeah. Just like the Flash isn't just a regular hero, but a superhero. All right, now, Trey and Tom to steal from Default. Donnie Osmond provided lead vocals on what song performed by the character of Captain Li Shang in Disney's Mulan?
2: Oh, it's, um, uh, let's get down to business. My my
3: daughter Uh, loved this movie. It's I'll Make a Man Out of You. Yes, yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. yeah. Let's
1: get down to the business. All right, so So what are you, what are you locking in I'll Make a Man Out of You. I'll make a man out of you. Yeah, I wanted to make sure the wording on that was right. There wasn't a proposition missing or anything, but yes, that's correct. And I'll give this default, or this bonus to default. So, I'll make a man out of you was composed and produced by what man who had a top five U.S. hit as a singer with his 1983 single, Break My Stride?
0: Man, the one part of this question I could have gotten hands to. <laughs> uh, I have no idea. Just for fun, do either of you two know? Elmer Trey? try
2: that's me shaking my head. Howard vigorously. Ashman?
0: Break My
1: Stride, it was by Matthew Wilder. Matthew Wilder, okay. Uh, one hit
3: wonder as an artist. All, all that stuff. All the other stuff was written by Ashman or Mencken. So, okay, Matthew Wilder
1: wrote that. Interesting. Yeah, I think Stephen Schwartz wrote an original version of the song that was not used. All right, our default and Tom to steal from Trey. But this is a little obliquely related to one of his categories, but I think it's well known enough that, that it'll uh, work out anyway. One of the only Heisman Trophy winners to not be taken in the NFL draft, FSU's Charlie Ward was instead drafted by the New York Knicks and helped them to the NBA Finals in 1999, where they were defeated in five games by the San Antonio Spurs. The Spurs front court was made up of two future Hall of Famers with the perhaps poorly aged nickname Twin Towers. Name either member of that very tall duo.
2: Yeah, the, uh, <laughs> my basketball knowledge is very limited. Um... Tim Duncan was a forward that played for the Spurs for a very long time. Twenty years was probably too long, but that's the only guess I got.
0: Yeah, this is both not my realm at all, and also before my time.
2: Unless it's like early career of like, I mean, very tall, you like Yao Ming or Dirk Nowitzki or someone, but you want to just go Tim Duncan and call it a day. Sure. All right, here you go Tim Duncan. <laughs>
1: Tim Duncan, yes. Before NBA, a research assistant for uh, the social psychologist Mark Leary at Wake Forest. So he was also an answer in my psychology mini league, Unlearned League. And he is one of the two. Yeah, so his career was very long, and he was just starting out back then. But he was the forward in that duo, Twin Towers. Trey, do you know who the center was? Robinson the ad So it was another Hall of Fame player at the other end of his career, one who had started a decade before Duncan, but was still playing by that time, David Robinson. And now Trey and default to steal from Tom. One of the funniest recurring characters on Veep is Mina Hakinen. Who appears as both the head of the IMF and the Prime Minister of a certain European nation. It is possible that the character's name was inspired by Mika Hakkinen, a two time Formula One world champion from that nation. Which country? Um, names I know almost always from Finland.
0: I would go with Finland too.
1: Yeah. It's Are locked like in me? Finland. Yeah. Alright. Yeah, I think when you see it written out, especially with that diuresis over the A, it becomes more obvious. But very good. And our bonus, Tom? What actress, probably best known in the UK as one of the three main cast members on the female-led sketch comedy series Smack the Pony, played Mina on Veep?
2: Haven't got a clue. Um, (laughs) Trusty Jones.
1: All right. It's not Fiona Allen or Doing My Kitchen. It's the other member of that trio, Sally Phillips. The question will go to Trey and Tom to steal from the The sixth episode and first season finale of the U.S. version of The Office, and also the first episode whose script was credited to Mindy Kaling, is titled Hot Girl. Who went on to considerable success and multiple Oscar nominations after portraying said Hot Girl?
2: It's Amy Adams. Okay, I'll go with that. I'm not a huge
3: Office fan, but I would definitely say Amy Adams, hot Girl. It, it,
2: it, it, It is Amy Adams. I haven't actually watched much of the U.S. office, but I remember that episode.
1: All right, I don't even have to see the text of the question. And I'll give the bonus to default. So despite its potentially objectifying title, the Hot Girl episode was both written and directed by women. Specifically, it was directed by what woman who had previously helmed the hit comedy feature films Fast Times at Ridgemont High, National Lampoon's European Vacation, Look Who's Talking, and Clueless?
0: Oh, oh my god, I can't remember her name. She also did Loser. Um. Oh my God! I can't believe I'm I'm blanking on her name. Finally, a question I could get. Uh, I completely forgot. All right, <laughs> I I pass because I can't I can't for the life of me remember.
1: Yeah, it's Amy Heckerling.
0: Ah, uh, jeez! I even added an extra movie. <laughs> <laughs> All
1: right. And now, default and Tom to steal from Trey. William Moulton Marston, the creator of Wonder Woman, was also a psychologist whose DISC theory of personality formed the basis for the DISC personality assessment still used by many employers today. In Marston's original conception, what two types of people were represented by the D and S in the DISC theory?
2: (laughs) Could it be dominant and submissive or am I going too into early psychology?
0: Um, I mean, I think he's like, isn't he like sort of famous for being like hypersexual? That might be it.
2: I have no context. I'm just trying to think. I, what like, it, uh, it wasn't
0: wasn't there like a whole thing about how like he was like kind of a sexual deviant? Not to you know, I mean, not by today's standards, but by the standards then. I think dominant and submissive. I mean, makes sense.
2: All right, let's go for it.
0: All right, yeah, I think actually there was a movie a couple years ago
1: called like Dr. Marston or Professor Marston and the Wonder Women about his polyamorous relationship. So he was definitely considered unusual for his time. Yeah, so um, nowadays in the DISC assessment, the DNS stand for, they stand for a few different things. But in the original version, they were dominance and submission or dominant and submissive. Yes, that's correct. All right, and the last question of this round will go to Trey and Default to steal from Tom. In 2018, a French-born filmmaker with the first name Diego, who had hosted the Nat Geo adventure travel series Don't Tell My Mother, moved to London to take a job overseeing Netflix's European factual programming division. What is Diego's surname, which he shares with his more famous grandfather? It's a silence here. (laughs) (laughs) Always been on a podcast to have total silence.
0: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Trey, I think your volume is low
3: um is this better
0: yeah it's, it's a little better okay, uh, i'm just
3: trying to think of french filmmakers we've got like godard we've got roger um, um trying to think i really have no i have nothing here but a guess
0: but we don't know I'm that his grandfather was a um we don't know that his grandfather was also a filmmaker his grandfather could be famous for other reasons
3: Oh, okay. Thank you, because I had that in my head from what I saw of the clue before.
0: Because the clue might be like factual programming or travel. Right. Which factual programming? Oh boy.
3: I'm kind. I'm coming up a cropper here, totally. And Tom is perched over this (laughs) one, so it's okay. I'm trying to think of famous that would give their child a Spanish name like Diego uh i mean picasso was spanish so no that's not it um uh, you got any any ideas default uh
0: no i mean i i think like any guess that i would have would be as good as yours he's also french born we don't know that he's he's french he could be he's just french born born so maybe like so
3: okay he's, so
0: Cousteau? I would go. That was my gut guess. Let's just... Yeah, let's
1: go Cousteau. Lock that in? Yeah. I like that guess. Very uh, creative thinking, but not correct in this case.
2: Tom? I also have embarrassingly no idea. So I'm going to follow their lead and say (laughs) Truffaut.
1: Yeah, I was going back and forth on whether to add it, or whether to say Wichy Sheriff was a more famous filmmaking grandfather. Because it's true, yeah, that is that is ambiguous the way it's written now, but I was kind of hoping you would follow the breadcrumbs in terms of someone with a Spanish name, because when you think of 20th century Spanish filmmakers, it's a much smaller set than 20th century French filmmakers. Uh-huh. And, you know, most many Spanish artists and intellectuals of that period did not live in Spain because it was taken over by Franco.
0: Oh, now I know the answer. <laughs> Damn
1: it. <laughs> right, they spent much of their life abroad, including in France, and in terms of a prominent 20th century Spanish filmmaker who spent much of his life in France. Do you want to say it, Default?
0: Is it Bunuel? Bunuel? Oh my
1: god. <laughs> Bunuel?
0: Okay. All right. All right, so we end
1: that round, the not-that-hard round. The scores are Default 8, Trey 8.5, and Tom 11.2.
3: So, and Yogesh, maybe I maybe I misunderstood the rules, but I didn't get a bonus when they uh, Tim Duncan and. Dominant submissive for me,
1: but shouldn't I have yeah. gotten the
3: bonus since they stole from me?
1: So yeah, as I said, I feel like I should have like a uh, why-didn't-I-get-a-bonus-team-music now. <laughs> but um, yeah, <laughs> I see the beginning there. They're irregular, they add an element of randomness to the game, and so far they haven't changed the outcome really, so they're mainly there just to kind of give the, the audience a few more questions and to give people a little more chance to show off their knowledge, but they're not going to be associated with every question. I
3: misunderstood, okay.
1: Alright, so now we will move into the only somewhat hard round where the questions are worth four points as a steal and three points as a specialist. If there is a bonus it will be worth two points. And we will start with Trey and Tom to steal from default. Here's a question. What man spent a surprising amount of time in the heavens joining a mountain climbing expedition that made it 20,000 feet up K2 in 1902 and another that went even higher on Kanchenjunga in 1905? Some biographies say that he abandoned the latter expedition following an avalanche and then absconded with their funds.
2: Hmm. Do you know where Kanchenjunga is, Trey?
3: Of the Himalayas? No.
2: You, you uh, know it's in the Himalayas, though? Yes. Okay, because yeah, uh, that would have narrowed it down if you'd also been like in Africa. Um,
3: I'm just trying to think. Okay, so mountain climber, early part of the 20th century, also a bit of a rogue who stole, possibly stole the money from his compatriots.
2: Hmm. Is it too late to be Rudyard Kipling?
3: No, it wouldn't be too late, but I had never heard that associated with Kipling. I've heard a lot of other rotten things said about Kipling, but not that he was a thief. No, it's not too late for Kipling. Kipling wrote in the 1890s when he took the whole white man's burden idea. So we certainly found still in the early
2: 1900s. Yeah, just the phrase a surprising amount of time in the heavens suggests that it's not known as a mountain climber, which kind of reduces us to guessing right. a little bit. Right,
3: right. But you know, as guesses go, that's not a bad one. A uh, surprising amount of time in the in the heavens. That had me thinking on crack hour at first until he mentioned the dates. Unless you know it's like what? a
2: British royal but I think I would know that if anything were big nonsense. Should we go Kipling?
3: Yeah,
1: uh, I, you know, Kipling, as guesses go, Kipling does sound pretty good.
2: All right, your we'll, so, we'll lock yeah,
1: it I in. We'll lock All right. in, Kipling. I was wondering if you would manage to salvage any kind of guess regarding that, so I'm pretty impressed you managed to come up with a semi-plausible one, but it's not the correct one. Default?
0: Um, Surprising amount of time in the heavens makes me think that it's someone who would go against that, so my guess is... Alistair Crowley. Yeah, so a surprising amount of time in the heavens because he's usually associated with the
1: opposite metaphysical domain. His name was Alistair Crowley. Whoa, I can't believe it. (laughs) I finally (laughs) got one. Nice get. All right, now default in Tom to steal from Trey. One of Julie Harris's record nine nominations for the Best Actress in a Play Tony Award came in 1964 for Marathon 33, a play written and directed by June Havok. Though she was a real person, Ms. Havok is much better known to theater fans as a supporting character in which classic
2: musical? This is uh, this is my weakest category.
0: <laughs> um, should we just? Do you have any ideas,
2: Ms. Havok... So uh, this implies that it's like a musical about music. If um, so sort of like or a musical about musicals?
0: Right. So there's that one. Which also, the name I'm forgetting, there's Gypsy that's another one.
2: Pippin is what I was thinking of, but I don't even know what that's about. All right, want to go with the, your guess this time?
0: Sure, let's go with, uh, it feels feels wrong, very wrong, but let's go with Gypsy. All right, you're locking in Gypsy? Yeah. Yeah. Gypsy, famously, of course,
1: the story of Rose Louise Kovic, who became Gypsy Rose Lee, but she had a, a sister in the musical, often called Baby June. Her birth name was June Hovick, but professionally... She it was had- right?! Hell yeah. Nice. You gotta have a gimmick, and that was hers. (laughs) right, and uh, this time you will get a bonus, Trey. Here's your bonus. Certain surnames seem to be blessed when it comes to the Best Actress in a Play category. So right behind Julie Harris's nine nominations in that category is what woman with eight? Please give her first and last name. Okay,
3: eight nominations for Best Act Play. Not in a musical, in a play. Okay. Well, let's see. Fairly common name. They've named a theater after her. On the way, I'm gonna say Helen Hayes.
1: Yeah. So the the certain surname be blessed was a, a hint that it was the same surname as Julie Harris. Actually, they both had this as their birth surname and their professional surname. Her name Barbara was Harris. What did you say? Barbara Harris. It was actually Rosemary Harris, a British actress. Ah. Okay. All right. Next question for Trey and default to steal from Tom. So I just finished editing and will soon be putting out episode 6 of this podcast, which mentions Jacques Perrin in the context of nature documentaries like Microcosmos or Microcosmos and Wing Migration. But he first became famous as an actor, and even after transitioning into production, he remained active acting in other people's films. In what now-classic 1989 movie, as painful as it is to call a movie made while I was alive, a classic, uh, does he appear in the frame story as film director Salvatore De Vita, the grown-up version of one of the protagonists.
3: Ah, Yogesh, I had a block come up on that. Can you read the question over, please? Yeah,
1: I'll send it again. Okay, I just finished editing episode six, mentions Jacques Perrin in the context of nature documentaries, but he first became famous as an actor, and even after transitioning into producing, he remained active uh, acting in other people's films. In what now-classic 1989 movie... Does he appear in the frame story as film director Salvatore De Vita, the grown-up version of one of the protagonists?
3: You know what? In 1990, I took the worst plane ride of my life. I flew back from London to New Orleans after getting dumped, literally, at the airport in London. And something that did not make the flight any better was that they were playing Cinema Paradiso. Because the way my mind was working on that plane trip, the last thing I wanted to see is something like that movie. But I know it was 1990, which means the movie came out in 89 with an Italian name for the director. I think it was Cinema Paradiso. You want to lock that in? Does that make sense to you,
0: Default? I thought, uh, I could have sworn that movie came out earlier, but I haven't seen it, so I guess... I mean, I, I, let's go for it. We'll lock it in. All right, yeah. And as I said, it,
1: it pains me to use the word classic for a movie that came out when I was around five years old, but I, I think it fits in this case. It is Cinema Paradiso.
3: Believe me, Yogesh, it pains me more to think about that movie.
1: <laughs> fair enough, fair
2: enough. Well, it came out in 88.
1: Yeah, it sometimes fluctuates depending on, like, festival premieres versus American oh, things like that, so it could be 88. Yeah, if you'd asked me before, actually, I probably would have said 88. Hi, this is future Yogesh, confessing to a minor research fail. Cinema Paradiso was released in its native Italy in 1988, but it didn't really become a success until it played at Cannes and TIFF in 1989, and in fact it premiered in the US in February 1990. Anyway, uh, your bonus for Tom. So uh, going back to Jacques Perrin, he has produced two films that, like Cinema Paradisa, won the Academy Award for Best Foreign Language Film. Both were in French but submitted on behalf of African Nations, a 1969 political thriller from Algeria and a 1976 war film
2: from what was then called Ivory Coast. Name either film. Oh, I don't know. Is, is the uh, 69 political thriller, is that Zed?
1: When I was at, uh, sorry, is that what you're locking in? Uh, yes. When I was at USC, actually, Costa Gavras, the director of that film, came to speak, and my girlfriend was trying to tell me about it, and she was like, oh, it's the director of Zed. And I was like, what's Zed? <laughs> I've heard of a film called Z, but, um, but sure, I will, as an Anglophile, I will accept Zed for that. <laughs> the Ivory Coast film was called Black and White in
2: Color. Oh, Coast wow. Film. All that, right, now... Uh, <laughs> what I've forgotten what categories I submitted that, that fit into.
1: <laughs> this will be especially fun for you then. All right, Trey and Tom now to steal from default. The US version of The Office is set in Scranton, Pennsylvania. Name either the Berkshire town where the UK version was set. Actually, you know what, I'm just going to make that the question. Name the Berkshire town where the UK version was set.
2: It's a slab. They placed it there because of the John Betjeman poem, which said, like, friendly bombs fall on Slough, where he was saying to basically the Germans to bomb it because there's nothing good there.
1: Okay, I'll go with Slough. All right, yeah. So I'm, I was originally going to make that an either or, and I think I'll just set the or to a bonus for default, which is now going to be very easy. Name the uh, the UK poet laureate whose poem about <laughs> town is mocked by David Brent's statement, you don't solve town planning problems by dropping bombs all over the place.
0: You guys are never going to believe this, <laughs> but I wasn't paying close enough t- attention to catch the name, so I'm going to lose this very, <laughs> basically, a free question.
1: You're not going to try and search your memory bank?
0: No, I, was, I, I, while, while Tom was talking, I was doodling a drag queen. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> that's what, that's where that went, because I knew the first part of the question. <laughs>
1: Uh, yeah, second cautionary tale from her. First, uh, yeah, don't co- <laughs> don't copy your opponent's answer, and now pay attention during their deliberations. But yes, as Tom said, it was Sir John Betjeman. The
3: uh, doodle drag queens because. Of-
1: <laughs> Yes, so feel free to do that at other times. No no problem. <laughs> All right, default and Tom now to steal from Trey. The list of national champions, quote unquote, in college football on the NCAA's FBS website stretches back to 1869 somehow, but it was not until 2014 that the championship was determined by having the top teams, you know, actually play against each other. Even that process has been controversial. What team had undefeated 12-0 regular seasons in both the 2017-18 season and And the 2018-19 season, but was not invited to the NCAA Division I FBS college football playoff. On January 8, 2018, then-Governor Rick Scott signed into law a proclamation declaring this team to be national champion. Hi, this is Future Yogesh, and before you say anything, yes, I do now realize that while the current college football playoff system has been in place since 2014, its earliest predecessor, the Bowl Coalition, was created in 1992.
2: So I had absolutely no idea until he said Rick Scott, who was governor of Florida and now Florida senator. So then it's got to be like FSU or University of Florida or like University of Central Florida. I I don't know.
0: I feel like UCF isn't exactly known for. I mean, maybe it is. Uh, I don't
2: know nothing about college football.
0: So yeah, maybe. Hmm. Feel like UF has the strongest has the strongest team, probably.
2: Love it. All right, University All right. of Florida.
0: All right, you're lucky like in
1: University of Florida.
0: Yeah. Uh, yeah.
2: Is that are we not? No, yeah, yeah. Let's. Okay.
0: All right, Trey, is
1: that correct? It's not, but you did mention it, Tom. UCF
3: put together back-to-back undefeated regular seasons and did not get invited to the playoffs. It is the University of Central Florida. Of course, it helped us play, played people like Maine and Bethune Cookman instead of actually playing good teams, but I digress.
1: My team is the Knights. It's Central Florida, the Knights. Yeah, the team that gave a chance to Shaquem and Shaquille Griffin, even though Shaquem was uh, playing single-handedly, as it were.
3: Ooh. Mm, <laughs> Yogesh. Yogesh. <laughs> That's a blush-worthy pun, Yogesh.
1: There wasn't going to be a way I wasn't going to work that pun in this episode. I just have to figure out how.
2: <laughs> I, don't, I don't get it.
1: <laughs> uh, Mr. Griffin uh, is born without a right hand? Left hand?
3: Well, left don't
2: uh, cool.
1: Yeah, he was born with a birth defect that, when he was four, led to the amputation of his left hand. But yeah, there were many schools that were interested in his twin brother, but not him due to his handicap. But his brother basically stood firm and said, you know, I'm not going to go to any school that won't take both of us. And so it was finally Central Florida that took a chance on both of them. And now they both play with the Seattle Seahawks in the NFL. All right. Now, Trey and default to steal from Tom. What historically Jewish and now largely Latino neighborhood of Los Angeles is the setting of the Starz TV series Vida and the Netflix series Hentified? It shares part of its name with the formulator of an empirical law that relates pressure and volume, but not altitude.
3: Okay. Historically Jewish and now largely Latino neighborhood of Los Angeles. Isn't it Boyle that did the gas
0: laws? Sounds right.
3: But I'm trying to think of a part of L.A. named after Boyle. Unfortunately, I did not watch Vita or the Netflix show that Yogesh mentions. Um, gas and pressure, but not altitude. Huh. I don't know of anything about Boyle's Laws having to do with altitude. It's all about pressure and volume. Maybe they're affected by altitude. Uh, is Boyle's, I mean, I've never lived in Los Angeles, and he has. He is right now in Los Angeles. <laughs> uh, and he's laughing at us because <laughs> he knows this neighborhood and we don't. Well, I don't. Is there a Is there part of LA called Boyle Town or something like that? Boilstown feels uh,
0: feels wrong.
3: Yeah, Bernoulli I'm, I'm now I'm going over Toricelli. Uh, I'm trying she's to think of every scientist.
0: Part of its name, so maybe hmm. it's like something you know. It's two words.
3: Okay. I'm I'm also trying to think of LA neighborhoods used to be Jewish and now it's Latino, but would they have kept a Jewish sounding name?
0: I mean, the only two LA neighborhoods I could think of are Echo Park, one of them that I don't know, Silver Lake. Also, I'm not positive that's one either. So those are the only two that come to mind.
3: I know there's an Echo Park. I know there's, oh, Englewood?
0: Englewood seems like it could be, right? That sounds like it could be Jewish. And there's a surname on top of it.
3: Yeah, I could. And uh, that's what you know, um, I haven't been out in L.A. in 18 years. I taped Jeopardy. But I had to stay at the hotel in Inglewood because it was right near the airport. And it wasn't a very nice neighborhood then. It was just the arena.
0: Let's go with Inglewood.
1: Okay, let's lock in Inglewood, Yergesh. All right, you locked in Inglewood, Tom? I have
2: no idea. (laughs) And I am not going to make a guess because any neighborhood I say will be worse than not guessing.
1: <laughs> yeah, I lived in Los Angeles for two years while I was going to USC, and I did not become familiar with the vast majority of neighborhoods because there are so many of them. So I have sympathy for you. So you're uh, you're just passing on that? Yeah. All right. So Trey got pretty far with pointing out that it was Boyle whose law relates pressure and volume. Then altitude was just a, a synonym-style clue for the remaining part of the name. It's Boyle Heights. Oh. oh. Okay. <laughs> Maybe that one should have gone to the really hard round, but oh well. Well, that's because it's always wanted to be Peralta Heights, really. But uh... <laughs> yes. Okay. <Thanks. laughs> Brooklyn Nine-Nine reference there. I was debating whether to make the extra clue a chemistry reference or a Brooklyn Nine-Nine reference. All right, Trey and Tom, now to steal from default. There is no real consensus among Wiccans on how to live morally, but one moral precept popularized by Raymond Robat Buckland and held up as a tenet by some Wiccans is called the Rule of Three, or Threefold Law. What does this moral principle state?
3: Uh, Rule of Three, Threefold Law, Rule of... Oh, God. I know I should be watching Charmed. Threefold law? Isn't harm none a major thing if you're a Wiccan?
2: I could not possibly tell you.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: I mean, you uh, know, I keep thinking. Uh... Rule of three or threefold law, like, do threefold as much good as bad? I have no idea. The three's got to come into Am I right?
3: Okay. Well, let's think about this. I was making a joke about it, but maybe, well, maybe there was something to that. The three separately are relatively weak, but you put them together, they become much stronger. So maybe the rule of three has to do with combining abilities to create a bigger effect.
2: I'm going to defer to you on this one. I really uh, don't know.
3: You put something out. Yeah, I think this is it. I think this is it. If you put something out for good or evil, it comes back on you three times strong. Does that sound That possible? sounds great. You know, that's a way to, because that's kind of a moral precept. If you do evil, evil comes back on your triple. If you do good, good comes back on your triple. Cool. So, All right. Is that what you're locking in? It's as good as any. Yeah. Let's go with that. Whatever you put out comes back to your threefold.
1: Yeah, you were kind of wandering away from it at the beginning, but you basically ended up there, right? Whatever you put out in the universe, good or bad, will come back to you three times, kind of similar to what you hear in a lot of new age movements. And they often will call it something like karma. It's not quite what karma is. It's more like the "My Name Is Earl" version of it. (laughs) Well, you're better. You're better at this than Seth Meyers, okay? All right, next question will go to Default and Tom to steal from Trey. 1971's Snowbirds Don't Fly broke ground for superhero comics with the depiction of Green Arrow sidekick Roy Harper as a drug addict. So both Roy and Green Arrow's later ward slash sidekick Mia Dearden carried what nickname? Other characters with this nickname include the title character of Harold Lloyd's Last Silent Comedy and an animated character who was the namesake of an Academy Award-winning 1955 Mary Melodies cartoon from Warner Brothers.
2: Whoa. All right. Let's think about this. Harold Lloyd's Silent Comedies. Um, The only one I know is Safety Last, and I don't think that was his last one. And then... Academy Award-winning cartoons who could be superheroes, conceivably. Like, the Roadrunner? Could they be Roadrunners? Uh, could they be Tasmanian Devils?
0: Is Snowbirds Don't Fly, maybe, a hint? Because, like, the, be. the first thing that came to my mind was Tweety Bird.
2: Tweety. Yeah, you're right. I mean, it probably is a bird. can't imagine they have a superhero in the 70s called Tweety, but it's not impossible. You're right, last time you had a ridiculous guess, so I, I'm down for this.
0: <laughs> Alright, let's think let's have like one more like think about it. I'm gonna reread the question, see if anything comes to me. I encourage you to do the same.
2: Yeah. How boy's colony and an animated character who was the namesake of an Academy Award winning nineteen fifty five cartoon from WB.
0: Oh, so maybe it's not it's a cartoon, not the character.
2: No, it is the character. Okay. It says an oh. animated character. Oh, okay. Who was the name? Say. What other Warner Brothers cartoons are there in the Looney Tunes? Um, Tom and Jerry. There's White, that pig. Wiley Coyote.
0: <laughs> What's the pig's name? You know what I'm oh, talking about? Nope. Oh. The reason I
2: like Tweety is because this is the like second round, so it probably wouldn't be anything super obvious. <laughs> Should
0: we just go with Tweety Bird?
2: Great. Or Tweety. Right. Yeah, Tweety maybe. Yeah.
0: All right, let's go with that then.
2: You want to lock in Tweety? Sure. All
1: right. Is that right, Trey? No, but I love the thinking behind it. (laughs) It's almost as
3: screwy as what they do with the Green Arrow in the comics anyway. He calls his girlfriend Pretty Bird, by the way, not Tweety Bird, the Black Canary. His sidekick got strung out on heroin and not methamphetamine, which you would figure given that his sidekick's name is Speedy, as in Speedy Gonzalez.
1: Uh... Casualty of political correctness, but at least when I was growing up, among the uh, Looney Tunes and Merry Melody cartoons, you could see Speedy Gonzales was the namesake of that cartoon, but the nickname was Speedy.
3: Sweetie Bird is closer than you thought it was.
1: (laughs) 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 Nice. Yeah, I know. I enjoy those kind of creative guesses, even when they're not quite right. And now the last question of this round, before I move into the final and super hard round, we'll start with Trey and Default to steal from Tom. So here's the question. Mike Flanagan, showrunner of The Haunting of Hill House, and Leah Fong, who was my contemporary at USC Film School, have recently signed a deal with Netflix to adapt the 1994 YA horror novel The Midnight Club. What author, who shares his nom de plume with the fictional USS Enterprise captain preceding J. James T. Kirk, wrote that novel.
3: I know the captain's name before Kirk was Christopher Pike he was the captain in the original pilot episode of star trek and then when they decide when lucille ball said no we're going to reshoot leaving this project uh, that's when they replaced christopher pike with james t kirk now i've never heard of a novelist named christopher pike but if they're asking who the captain was before
0: kirk it's pike yeah let's go with last names are good are okay so let's go with pike
1: Yeah, so uh, if you were reading those kind of YA horror novels, if it wasn't R.L. Stein, you were reading, you were reading the number two name in that genre, Christopher Pike. Don't tell him, Pike. (laughs) All right. If you were Jeffrey Archer, I'd have been really upset with you because nobody counts Enterprise. (laughs) All right. I'll give Tom a bonus. So speaking of Mike Flanagan and Haunting of Hill House, the second season... The first season, obviously, was inspired by Shirley Jackson's The Haunting of Hill House. They've now decided to turn it into an anthology. Which classic novel is the second season inspired by?
2: The Haunting of Bly Manor. Is that your answer? Yes.
1: So that's the title of the season. It is inspired by the classic novel The Turn of the Screw by Henry James. (laughs) Rats. All right. So at the end of this round, I believe we have Default, rejecting two points, is at 23.0. Tom at 25.2, and Trey at 30.5. But this next round, the point values will go up. They'll now be worth six points as a steal and five points as a specialist, three points as a bonus. And we will start again with Trey and Tom to steal from default so a question about this man is long overdue for this podcast. I've been fascinated by his life for a long time. The subject of the CBS all-access TV series Strange Angel, what self-taught rocket scientist co-founded both JPL and Aerojet, all affiliated with Caltech under the aegis of his mentor Theodore von Karman, but is today remembered because he juxtaposed those accomplishments with occult rituals like the Babylon working he conducted after his sister-in-law slash lover Sarah Northrup left him for L. Ron Hubbard can't remember his name.
2: I, I read about this TV show. Uh,
3: Northrop Grumman is an Air Force company. Would it be
2: Grumman? Yeah, that, that rings a bell. Okay, let's walk in Grumman.
1: I see your reasoning behind that, but yeah, that wasn't quite the right thread to follow.
0: Default? I am forgetting his name. I think it's like Ray something. Really annoying, because I can picture his face. And once again, <laughs> damn, I really wish I remembered what his name was. Man, I instantly... I guess I have to, I'll just say Raymond and then that's, that's it. That's my answer. Yeah, I used to
1: have trouble remembering that too. Sound a very easy way to remember his name is to remember that he founded JPL, which of course stands for Jet Propulsion Laboratory, but many of his contemporaries called it Jack Parsons Laboratory. <sighs> And oddly, his birth name on his birth certificate is actually Marvel, for some reason.
3: I'll tell you with that company,
1: Marvel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're the obscure one. All right, now default in Tom to steal from Trey. The Tony-winning musical A Gentleman's Guide to Love and Murder is based on the novel Israel Rank, the autobiography of a criminal, which was also notably adapted into what 1949 comedy that a canonical 1999 survey by the British Film Institute names the sixth greatest British film of all time?
2: It's Kind Hearts and Coronets where Alec Guinness plays I think eight or nine members of the same family who someone has to kill and Alec Guinness plays them all regardless of age or gender. I'm reasonably confident (laughs) in this one. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, you don't have to see the text there. Let's it. it. Yeah, depending on the source. Some sources say eight, some say nine, but yeah, you have the film exactly right. And I'll just give this bonus to Trey. So as I said, it was sixth on that BFI 100 list. Of the five films that ranked above it, who directed three of them? The
3: BFI... Um... Okay, greatest British film director ever. Well, we've got some choices there. We've got
1: Olivier.
3: He directed the Shakespeare films he made. We got Alfred Hitchcock. He made a few movies. Uh, I'm going to go, I'm going to say David Lean. Yeah. On the bridge down the River Kwai. I'll say David Lean. Yeah.
1: So, again, thinking not just of who are great British filmmakers, but who actually worked out of Britain. Hitchcock's great movies were mostly based in the U.S. But yeah, I believe they were Brief Encounter, Lawrence of Arabia, and maybe Great Expectations. But again, so definitely David Lean had three of the top five. Points to everyone on that. And now Trey and Default to Steal from Tom. Samantha starring Emmanuel Araujo as a former child star from the 80s who will do anything to get back into the spotlight, so basically a less depressing BoJack Horseman. Is the first sitcom from what country to be produced by Netflix?
3: I think I may have seen this in the news recently. I think it's Nigeria.
0: Um my guess would have been a South American country, but if you if we think it's Nigeria, let's let's do Nigeria. Mm. Any
3: particular country you had in mind? Because I'm no, just thinking Emmanuel's I, of kind yeah, of French. Yeah, it is. And I noticed Joe guest didn't give the Spanish or Portuguese pronunciation of it. Instead of Araujo, he said Araujo.
0: Okay, so let's go with let's go with uh, Nigeria.
1: Okay, let's say Nigeria. Alright, locked in Nigeria. Tom?
2: I was hoping that would be right to spare my blushes. <laughs> <laughs> Damn, I don't know. Uh sitcom uh first something that Netflix hasn't made too much programming in oh we didn't say it was recent but it is i'll say romania
1: all right so they said it was the first sitcom not the first series i think there's actually a surprising amount of buzz for the first dramatic series that netflix produced in this country which was called three percent yeah i miss uh, brazil the thought was on the right lines. Yeah, I actually listened to a few different talk show interviews to get the pronunciation right, because otherwise I would have gone with the Spanish Araujo, but it is more Portuguese, and so it sounds more like Araujo. But um, yeah, it's a place where lots of different cultures have mixed. It's Brazil. Oh, God, that's It's okay. All right, and now the next one goes to Trey and Tom to try and steal from default. This is what I've called before a solve for X question, where I've deleted a word or phrase and replaced it with X, although there's only one X in this quote, so it's not that complicated. Somebody's saying there be no math. (laughs) Right, yes, Uh, solve for X, but not in the algebraic sense. Okay, so here's a question. Per Dwight Schrute, quote, all of my heroes are X players. Zoran Primorak, Jan-Ova Waldner, Wang Tao, Jorg Roskopf, and, of course, Ashraf Helmy. I even have a life-size poster of Hugo Hoyama on my wall. And the first time I left Pennsylvania was to go to the Hall of Fame induction ceremony of Andre Gruba. End quote. All of those men are noted for their accomplishments in what sport?
2: Trey, I can't hear you.
1: Yeah, your mic is off.
3: Is that better? Yeah. So I guess all of these are real names and
1: not ones they made up for the
3: show. Although I don't recognize any of them. Did Dwight fancy himself a chess player?
2: No. Ooh. The only reason I say no is that I follow chess a decent amount and I've never heard of any of these names. Uh, which isn't to say they can't be chess players. I would just be surprised.
3: Think of a sport that would have I mean, such a wide variety of national names.
2: It's Dwight, so it's going to be something ridiculous like <laughs> Magic the Gathering or like Starcraft. <laughs> um, uh, but it, I mean, it, it could be like a more traditional sport, like something really obscure, like uh, tiddlywinks. So, <laughs> no, that's not a traditional sport. I have no idea. Um, and so Do yeah, um... you even call them sensing players? But I like it. <laughs> Handball. If we get the thread I'm gonna to have to
3: send something to Juan Tao. thanks for everything. <laughs> um Wow. I'm kind of it's international sport, but it's, you know, the most international sport is soccer, but I certainly don't recognize any of them as soccer names.
2: For it to be a joke it has to be something really obscure. Um
3: we're talking about the white shroop here.
2: Yeah, like chess boxing. Um water polo with horses. Um <laughs>
3: backgammon?
2: I could get behind water polo. Okay, sure. Okay. I mean, this is a total
3: guess. Uh, Yeah, okay. Let's lock in water polo. Nobody gets out of the pool.
1: All right, yeah. And and those are all real-life individuals. I had to do a bit of googling to confirm it. But yes, as you surmise, they are all real people. Default?
0: Yeah, this this is a hard one because... I wanted to go with StarCraft because we know that he likes StarCraft, but let's be real. StarCraft Hall of Fame is probably going to be mostly Korean. Um, I'm going to go, but sport. Still, maybe something that's, that like Mennonite people would like, or like something adjacent to like dueling or fencing feels right. But I think I'm going to go with Magic the Gathering. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, I, I do try and take an expansive
1: definition of sport. Some people are more restrictive. I don't know if I already broaden it to Magic the Gathering. no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's not an e-sport this is from the episode the deposition where it ends with a scene of dwight playing the sport opposite his cousin mose played by michael schurr the showrunner and yeah that was when we learned that dwight is amazingly proficient in
2: table tennis
0: makes sense these names
1: yeah it
2: does make sense that's the sport we were looking for <laughs>
1: Alright, default in Tom now to steal from Trey. This is, again, a kind of a longer and complex question. Hugo Blick, who has written, produced, and directed such well-crafted miniseries as The Shadow Line and The Honorable Woman, got his start as an actor, like Jack Beren, and notably made his feature film debut portraying what villain in a big-budget Hollywood blockbuster? This villain's name, which might indirectly be derived from a historical nickname for the 15th century Duke of Suffolk, William de la Pole, has since 2017 been shared with a DC comics character whose alter ego is white knight some of those clues may be less helpful than others
2: (laughs) so this is me and default stealing from trey yes great i can't really help you on duke of suffolk william delapole duke of suffolk no all right and what was this guy's name hugo blick villain in a big budget hollywood blockbuster choice is so broad that I, I don't even know where to start. Like, um, we could go from White Knight. <laughs> do you know that? Because that would...
0: <laughs> no, I'm just saying in terms of like how to like engineer an answer.
2: Uh, without the year of the Hollywood blockbuster, I'm really screaming right. here. All right, okay, so got his start before directing these mini-series, so uh, maybe something around between 2020-10 villains in major hollywood films like i'm just going to start throwing things out here we got megatron we got the cobra from gi joe
0: something that would have fit in the 15th century though
2: silver uh, james bond villains le chifre Damian green um blofeld
0: wonder if it's like closer to a name because it's the alter ego is white knight so it would be weird if right like it'd be weird if like x thing yeah. he had two fake names
2: yeah you're right so it's a human name and then also it has to be like relatively obscure because neither of us have heard of hugo blick
0: <laughs> right
2: so it's not like a prominent but it's a big, big
0: budget hollywood film so I went back and forth in
1: terms of giving a year. I thought that giving a year would be way too much help for this round. But I look at it and yeah, there isn't any kind of anchor point at all there. So I'll just say a 20th century big-budget Hollywood blockbuster.
2: Okay. <laughs> 20th century. <laughs> that makes it much more difficult, <laughs> but also helpful. I'm thinking Die Hard, um, Fast and the Few. No, that was probably not 20th century. Who were the villains in subsequent Die Hard movies after, like, Hans Gruber? And the big budget movies, you got Terminators, you got Aliens, you got some Star Wars. But it's unlikely to be sci-fi for the reason that you said.
0: Right. Maybe, like, an action movie, like a big action movie.
2: Big Hollywood villain who we don't know who played it. Because then I was thinking, like, Adrian Smith from The Matrix, but that was Hugo Weaving. i got nothing here.
0: Um... Yeah, any guesses I have, I, like, wouldn't have the name. Like what? Thinking, like, maybe, like, movies where, like, it's, like, we don't see their face. Or, like, we don't, like, they're they're villains. But, like, for some reason we don't, like, know what they look like. But we would still have a human name.
2: Are we going to go Lucky Johnson here?
0: (laughs) I'm really curious about the answer.
1: You just want to say Johnson, then?
2: Yeah, we're looking in Lucky Johnson. (laughs) All right.
1: Now, I I wanted to keep leaping in and helping direct your thoughts in that, but of course, that would be unfair. So uh, I'll just pass it over to Trey.
3: Did you ever dance with the devil in the pale moonlight? The White Knight is from an alternate universe. White Knight, as opposed to the Dark Knight, Batman, Batman's biggest enemy, supposedly got his name from William de la Pole because... Supposedly, he inspired the Joker card in a deck of playing cards. And uh, Hugo Blick played, I'm guessing, the young Joker in the Batman movie in 1980. You know, the older version of Jack So I'm
1: going to say it's the Joker. So I'm going to have to ask you to be more specific. I'm going to have to ask for more information on that answer.
3: Well, if it's who I think it is, the young guy never gotten in the makeup. So I'm going to say Jack Napier.
1: Yeah, so William Dale Bull historically was known as Jack and Apes, which I suspect has to be on some level the inspiration for Jack Napier. I've also heard it's a reference to Alan Napier, who played Alfred the Butler in the 60s Batman series. But yeah, I mean, the clues there are in this 20th century blockbuster, DC comics, White Knight, as in Dark Knight. I don't know if you're too young to remember the original Batman blockbuster series, but the 1989 one, the Joker was played, of course, by Jack Nicholson, but we didn't only see him as a Joker. We also saw him as the thief who killed Bruce Wayne's parents, who asked, did you ever dance with the devil in the pale moonlight? And in that incarnation, he was played by Hugo Blick, and he was called Jack
2: Napier.
3: Yeah, no. Interestingly enough, in comics, the Joker doesn't really have a name. There's a famous bit where they say, where they interrogate him, and he's like, How did I get started? There are 500 versions of that story, and I don't even know which is the right one anymore. He literally has no name aside from being the Joker, but yeah. In the movies, they called him Jack
1: Napier. Yeah,
2: Yeah. after this year, it'd have gone for Arthur Fleck, which obviously (laughs) wouldn't have been right.
1: Yeah, age has its advantages. All right, now Trey and default to steal from Tom. The headline of a 2018 piece in the Washington Post declared that a certain woman, quote, is the grand dame of Iranian cooking. It's time you knew her name, end quote. (laughs) That chef and cookbook author shares her surname with her two sons, one of whom was a longtime member of Vampire Weekend, and the other of whom is a director who collaborated with Britt Marling on the film Sound of My Voice and The East and the TV series The OA. This multi-talented family has what surname that, despite how it sounds, does not derive from DC Comics?
0: Hmm. All right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, it's up to you to use this DC Comics clue.
3: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, DC Comics, um, they've got a variety of Middle Eastern characters, um, and there's a funny thing is that the one I keep coming back to, Middle Eastern, huh? The one I keep coming back to used to be called Captain Marvel, but they're not allowed to call him that anymore. They call him Shazam because of some sort of copyright thing that is far too boring to get into. I know absolutely nothing about Vampire Weekend. That band has bitten my butt on more trivia contests than I can think of, and I really ought to know them by now. Drilling, the Sound of My Voice, The East, The O.A. Oh, cooking. Um... They don't really address a realist comic. They have made-up countries, places like Iran and Iraq, rather than get into that sort of trouble.
0: Sure, but I think um, your your Shazam thing maybe is onto something, like something that sounds like something.
3: Yeah, that's what I'm seeing. Let's See, what other characters do they have from that area? They've got Black Adam. That doesn't help any. They had. Uh, let's see. Who else did they have? Yeah, I keep coming back to Shazam, but it's no more than like 60 percent. And you know what, if I call it out and lightning strikes me, that's great. <laughs>
0: maybe yeah. it's one part of that word. Maybe it's like part of the word Shazam, like Shaz or Zam or something. <laughs> but the, maybe like the other thing about the DC Comics hint is like maybe it's not like something from the Middle East. Maybe it's like a short word or like a sound effect that could conceivably right. be a Persian last name.
3: Right. I'm just trying to think of Farsi or Persian names. Well, let's see, there's Palavi, but, you know, Kardashian is Armenia. Right.
0: Um, I think like any name that ends in I-A-N is usually Armenian.
3: Yeah.
0: Probably ends in an I or maybe like a C.
3: And then we've got, uh, well, let's see, we've got, I'm trying to think of uh, somewhat famous Farsi names. Khomeini, uh, Akhmadinejad, you know, those sound <laughs> like comic characters. Interestingly enough, one time they did do Iran in the comics. They tried to make the joke or the ambassador to the UN from Iran, but that's not helping at all. Uh, I'm kind of yeah. Is Shazam okay?
0: I guess yeah. Let's. I um, I don't feel comfortable having that be our answer. But then what if okay. it is?
3: If it is, we'll be tremendously lucky or unlucky. Wait a minute. Ta-da-da. Who
0: are the major DC Comics characters?
3: Okay, uh, let's see, we got Clark Kent, Batman is Bruce Wayne, uh, Diana Prince, although they don't call her that anymore. Jay Allen, Hal Jordan, Guy Gardner, Green Lanterns, um, Aquaman is... Arthur Curry, I think. Villains. is... Uthor, does right here. Oh, boy. Are they, um, are X-Men running... or
0: Marvel? Or neither?
3: X-Men or Marvel. Let's see, uh... Semestral. No. Yeah. See, there's nothing The hawks were all Egyptians. That doesn't. Wait.
0: Did uh, you
3: say the folks? Uh, uh, hawks? Of hawks. The There was a hawk man, a hawk woman, and they're all from ancient Egypt. Um, okay. Shirazi. Hmm. I keep going back to try to think of farsi sounding names, and if any of those strike a chord.
0: Should we just go with like Shiraz, maybe?
3: You no. Know, let's see. Maybe I'm thinking about this wrong. We've got, uh, we also have a couple of, like I said, they have, they don't use real countries. They use made-up countries. One's called Khandak. The other is called Bialya from that part of the world. It might be There's, uh You any- guys
1: banked up a lot of time by rushing through the early questions, but remember, there are still three more questions after this one.
3: Yeah. Okay. I've got nothing better, so one, Shazam,
1: Shiraz, or Kandak.
0: Let's do Shiraz. Okay, Shiraz.
1: Shiraz, that is a name associated with Iran and with food and drink. But yeah, I think you probably figured out it was a long shot. Tom has had a very, very long time to contemplate this.
2: Yeah, I, I don't know it. I know his first name begins with a Z, and that's all I can come up with. It's something like Zaffir. Um
1: You're in America now, you have to say Z.
2: <laughs> yeah, Brit Marling, and yeah, I, I'm not going to be able to come up with the right name, so I'll just say Shazam for them.
1: Yeah, so, I mean, I'm not a huge vampire. I know some people who know the family primarily through his brother, whose first name is Rostam. I don't know too many who know through the mother, but apparently she's a, a big deal in the world of cooking. But yeah, I also know the filmmaker. He goes by the first name Zal, Z-A-L. Yeah. Yeah. His last name, because of my ugly American tendencies, I always focus in on the first six letters of it. But the full name is Batmanglij. Beginning, of we course, <laughs> yeah. Beginning, of course <laughs> B-A-T-M-A-N. Very small hop from the previous question. All right. I guess Britt Marlin got most of the press from there because people can actually pronounce her name. Okay, now one last cycle of questions. So each of you will get one more specialist question and two more chances to steal. So we will begin with Trey and Tom now to steal from default. Donnie Osmond wants season nine of the U.S. version of Dancing with the Stars in partnership with what Australian dancing pro who had previously triumphed in the second season of her native country's version of Dancing with the Stars? You can give either her professional name at the time or the married name she has used since her 2016 wedding to a Canadian investor who, like her, is also a familiar figure from reality TV.
2: Could it be um, one of the people on Shark Tank? like kevin o'leary or who else is canadian and on reality tv and an investor johnny osman
1: you're kind of quiet i don't know if there's a way to increase your
2: volume can you hear
1: me now it's still fairly quiet i know very little about that
3: show except that i hate politicians <laughs>
2: what canadian investors do you know apart from kevin o'leary and lawrence stroll is the only other canadian billionaire i can come up with
3: Kind of you to think I know the guy that owns the Edmonton Oilers? I don't know.
2: Canadian Investor.
3: Okay, this is, this is a deep cut, uh, for sure. I don't think your category was reality TV, because we haven't heard this one before tonight. Maybe it was Donnie Osmond and I don't yeah.
2: know. I think this counts as oblique.
3: <laughs> <laughs> you know what? Um, I know a couple of the dancers, Julianne Huff, but she hasn't gotten... She Every time I see her with her brother, I get nervous um cheryl is a dancer that's been on that show a lot
2: i kind of want to go o'leary here unless you've got a better guess
3: let's say you want to go lucky johnson maybe there's a dancer named johnson i don't know
2: no no i think o'leary is definitely a better guess than johnson here
3: okay all right i can go with o'leary all right it's as good a guess as
2: yeah it, it's better than johnson <laughs> all right we'll lock it in you O'Leary,
1: o'leary locking o'leary all right i'll yeah. keep quiet and pass it to default
0: Well, I know a lot about Donny Osmond. If you had asked, like, what 90s cartoon he often cameoed in, I could tell you it was Johnny Bravo. Or what more recent reality TV show he was in, say The Masked Singer. But sadly, this is the one Donny Osmond piece of trivia I don't know. (laughs) So I'm going to also give a random name. I think I'll I'll take uh, Tom's usual Johnson. So Lucky Johnson for me.
1: All right. So, yeah, Tom, you were on the, the right track thinking of Shark Tank. And I think the Canadian version is, is it Dragon's Den? Uh, something like but yeah, I mean, in terms of the people who are often on it, I actually hadn't realized Kevin O'Leary was Canadian. But yeah, he is. The other Canadian who shows up on there a lot, though, his name is Robert Herjavec. I don't know if that rings a bell. But yeah, this dancer did marry him. But when she won with Donnie Osmond, though, she was known by her unmarried name, which is Kim Johnson.
2: <laughs>
3: are you kidding me? Are you freaking kidding me? Uh,
2: I would say I'm so sorry, but I'm yeah, not.
0: I'm not a lucky Johnson.
2: <laughs> oh, that's
0: stupid. I'm, I'm glad I got it. Oh, you man, have no man,
1: idea man. how happy it makes me that one of you guessed Johnson. I no, there is. I, I wow, was so. Okay. I, I, the other,
3: yeah, for the conversation
1: when that came up earlier in the game i was like maybe it'll happen maybe it'll happen and it did happen and it happened in the best possible way
2: all right all
1: right just uh just two more questions now so we'll go with default and tom to steal from trey yeah and this question so if, if people listen to these episodes in order it'll be a repeat because sometimes it happens i I come up with a great question and then I burn it in the three R's round and then someone submits a category where it would be perfect. And normally I just say bad luck, but sometimes if I really like the question... So that episode hasn't been heard by anyone except me and the three contestants, so this question is completely blind to all of the current contestants. So I'm just going to reuse it because I like it that much. So this is now going to default in Tom to steal from Trey. Here's the question. What knighted Oscar-winning actor has never appeared on Broadway as a performer? but won a Tony after his wife Micheline saw Yasmina Reza's art in its original French and persuaded him to produce the English-language stagings in the West End and on Broadway.
0: So if you want to guess some Oscar-winning, knighted Oscar-winning actors.
2: Yeah, so... Who, who there are There are several, but there aren't that many. So Kenneth Branagh does not have one, I believe. Well, not as an actor sir richard harris does sir laurence olivier of course does but you figure it's got to be harder more obscure than that so the question makes it seem as if the person in question is known as a stage actor uh sir so, jeffrey so rush has an oscar australian uh i don't know if he has a wife though Oof. sir alec guinness could have come up again but he don't think has a wife micheline um maybe dead ian mckellen and patrick stewart um...
0: but they've both performed they were in oh, oh. waiting for godot in like 2013
2: it never even appeared on broadway right 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 yeah my best guess right now is richard harris um peter o'toole famously never won an oscar though
0: and kenneth Branagh doesn't have one either because isn't doesn't he have some sort of like theater connection did i make that up
2: No, he has lots of theatre connection. I I just don't think he's won an Oscar. I think he was nominated for Henry V in my week with Marilyn and didn't win. Um, Yasmin Razor. Did Yasmin Razor write Carnage? So does that make it a recent question? Or God of Carnage, as it was known? Ooh, maybe I'm Or am I just being racist?
0: (laughs) (laughs) The classic situation. (laughs) If I had a nickel for every
1: time someone has asked that on this podcast.
2: <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Um, do, do, do. Okay. If it is the more recent thing, Richard Harris has been dead a while, so that's suddenly looking like not as good of an answer. So Derek Jacoby, I don't know if he has an Oscar. Ooh, did Gary Oldman just get knighted? He just won an Oscar, and I don't know if he just got knighted.
0: Should we go with?
2: Do you have any other guesses? No. Nah. All right, Yogesh. <laughs> Tentatively, sir, Gary Oldman. <laughs> All
1: right, locked in, Gary Oldman. I can check on that while I pass it over to Trey. Oh, <laughs> I can think of one Oscar winning British actor
3: that got knighted. I don't think he's ever been on a stage, and I know he didn't particularly want to be knighted by an English queen. So I'm thinking, this sounds a lot to me like Sean Connery. Is that what you're locking in? Yeah, I'm going to go with Sean Connery, because I don't think he's ever acted on Broadway, but I know he was knighted, because he wasn't happy about it. He's a Scottish nationalist, if
1: I recall. Yeah, you kind of passed over the Scots in your survey, Tom. Um, but, yeah, someone who, who is very much not a stage actor, I think, who came to acting through bodybuilding. But, yeah, he managed to get his Tony Award as a producer, Sir Sean Connery. And
3: an Oscar for The Untouchables. Right.
2: All right, cut uh, me out of my m- misery, though. Did Yasmin Razorike, right God of Carnage?
1: Yes. She, okay. <laughs> There have been four plays that won the Best Play Tony Award in translation. I think two fairly early on, Beckett by Jean Anouilh and The Persecution and Assassination of Jean-Paul Marat, performed by the inmates of the asylum at Charenton, under the direction of the Marquis de Sade by Peter Weiss. I did all that from memory. And then the other two were both actually translated by Christopher Hampton, who some have said is actually a better playwright than Yasmina Reza, so maybe deserves a bit more of the credit. But Art and God of Carnage, uh, yeah, were both by her. All right, and now the last question of, let's see, where does that put us score-wise? The last question will go to Trey and Default, who steal from Tom? And it looks like first place is sewn up, but between Default and Tom, whoever gets this will have second place. So there's still something to play for, in addition to Pride, which is always there to play for. (laughs) (laughs) There's a question Trey and Default to steal from Tom. So we began with a Stephen King question, and we will end with one. King's 1982 anthology, Different Seasons, collects four novellas that are each given a three-word subtitle. Those subtitles broadly summarize the theme of each novella and are also linked by an overarching pattern that you should be able to deduce. So what is the three-word subtitle associated with the novella Rita Hayworth and Shawshank Redemption? Rita Hayworth and Shawshank
3: Redemption. Okay. And this is referencing seasons? Okay. Briefly summarize the theme of each novel. not particularly seasons. Alright.
0: Okay. So maybe it would be easiest to like think of like a three-word nickname for Rita Hayworth and then see if it applies to the plot of the Shawshank Redemption?
3: The title of the story is Rita Hayworth and the oh, Shawshank okay. Redemption. They short it for the movie.
1: Yeah, imagine there are quotation marks around
3: that. Okay. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. Okay. So let's think about the whole thing of the Shawshank Redemption. He was innocent, but he was never going to be able to prove that. The war was heavy on redemption, but only by following his rules. Um, you know, to words of different seasons. I keep coming back to different seasons. I wish I knew Stephen King's novella collections the theme of each novella linked by an overarching pattern we ought to be able to deduce. Right, okay. so it's
0: probably like the, you know, like the blank winter, the blank fall. Right. Okay. I'm trying to think of... Winter
3: does not strike me as anything to do with the Shawshank Redemption. What about fall? Uh, some, well, I guess you could do a bit of a pun on it. There's a whole bit with rise and fall, or fall and rise in his case. For some reason, I keep thinking of spring more when it comes to Shawshank, because there's that whole sequence where he literally bursts out of the earth during a thunderstorm after crawling through a mile of stuff. As Morgan Freeman put it, um, <laughs> oh boy. Uh, okay, so let's maybe let's play around with spring a little bit. Uh, Hope springs eternal. Rite of spring. Uh, oh boy. Rite of spring. The uh, Vivaldi thing, maybe I don't know. I'm getting definitely. Yeah, they tell me a season that they was so- that Charles was associated with spring because because of that. In the past, you know, spring awakening? No, that's too. Old. But if it's the um, spring awakening, could be. But there's another thing, another thing that runs through the the story though is never to lose hope. Loses hope and hangs himself. Andy never loses hope, and uses that little gem hammer to dig his way through the prison wall. Red is about to give up hope, and then he decides to run off to Mexico to find Andy. The warden loses Hope and shoots himself when he's about to be arrested.
0: What if it is Hope um, Springs Eternal?
3: You know what, that's almost cliché enough to be king. <laughs> I'm not disparaging him, but he loves taking things like that and... and
0: giving it a twist. ...tearing
3: them apart. Yeah. I can live. You want to you lock in Hope yeah, Springs let's Eternal? Yeah, lock in
0: Hope Springs Eternal. Yeah. Okay,
1: it's locked Yogesh. gosh. Hope Springs Eternal. All right. Do you know it, Tom?
2: <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs>
1: In that case, I'll I'll put you out of your misery then. Yeah, as uh, Andy Dufresne says, at least in the movie, I'm not sure about the novel. Remember, Red, hope is a good thing, maybe the best of things, and no good thing ever dies. So yeah, the four, now the breathing method, the only one that has been made into a film is subtitled A Winter's Tale. The Body, which was made into Stand By Me, is subtitled Fall From Innocence. Apt Pupil, which was made into the film Apt Pupil, is Summer of Corruption. And Rita Hayworth and Shawshank Redemption is Hope Springs Eternal.
2: Wow.
0: We got it. (laughs) <laughs> holy uh,
1: wow
3: <laughs> it is a good thing it is the very best of...
0: <laughs> i can't believe i fell backwards into like what four answers <laughs> <laughs> well that's
1: the thing about this podcast yeah a lot of people say that and i'm always like well you know there were there are always hints there and always little little bits of guidance but yeah luck will always play a role as well so uh yeah no when you were, when you started off when you're like i don't remember the name of anything i was like oh this may not go well for her but You pulled out some there at the end. (laughs) All right, so I believe we have final scores of Default, 40.0, Trey, 49.5, and Tom, 31.2. Before we sign out, you can each give a, a final statement. Basically, anything you want to say, as long as it's not too long or offensive, it'll be kept in. It can be about anything under the sun, the game, the state of the world, anything you want to promote, or anything else. And we'll go in downward scoring order. So we'll start with Trey.
3: Thanks very much for this. Yo, guess it was a tremendous amount of fun. I don't think I ever fully realized until tonight just how ridiculous Green Arrow comics are. So thank you for bringing that to clarity.
1: <laughs> All right. Default.
0: Thanks for having me on. Even though I'm sure you remembered my performance in college, what was my undergrad? And I guess you're grad and if anyone wants to follow me you can at default underscore friend on twitter
2: all right tom thanks for having us here, Gash. i thoroughly embarrassed myself but it was <laughs> it was good fun and continuing the netflix theme in this current time i want to just plug two titles both by ava duvernay one is her documentary 13th and one is the miniseries when they see us which are both very good viewing about now
1: very timely. and yeah none of you have humiliated yourselves you all did quite well very much in line with how people have performed on this podcast, which is pretty much always better than they expect. So yeah, very good job to all of you. This has been episode 18 of Recreational Thinking with Yoga Shroud. Thanks for listening.